Well, I don't know about you four oaks, but I found that simultaneously precious and horrifying. <laughs> so Scott and Julia never, ever wear matching sweatshirts up in this place. Again, but did you see the way Julie just longingly looked up at Scott as he freaked everybody out on the screen up there? Anyway, hey, Four Oaks, so glad you've joined us. If we don't know each other, I'm Pastor Paul, lead pastor here at Four Oaks Killarn. Um, you know, oftentimes we talk about the beginning of the year or the beginning of a new year as a renewed season to jump into God's Word, to, to dig in to read through the Bible, to, to focus on biblical and scriptural truths. And I just want to follow up um, a couple of things in that announcement and just sort of put a punctuation point on them. As Julie mentioned, we are starting our pastoral devotionals up again tomorrow. And just so, to give you a sense, if, if you're not familiar with them, what we actually do is we spend Monday through Friday walking through the passage that we're going to be preaching on for that upcoming Sunday. So it's very possible at some point in the future, if you've listened to all those devotionals, you may be tagged to preach that Sunday. I'm just saying, it could, it could happen. But what, it, what this allows us to do, it lets you sort of see how I approach a passage, how I start to work through it, interpret it, unpack it, and hopefully it'll be helpful to you to get some tools for studying the Word of God for yourself. The second thing that, that Julia mentioned of course, is the reappearance of our long-lost sermon study guides. And so if you've been here for a while, you, you were probably here when we did these, but there's a lot of new folks, and so uh, and you probably haven't seen them. But these sermon guides are an, kind of a one-stop shop where you get the scripture for that week's um, sermon. Um, there's a reading, there are questions, there's a place to take sermon notes, and there are also just uh, question, discussion questions to use in your community group. Now, what I have here in my hands is an actual hard copy of the sermon discussion guide, okay? And unless you are a technological brontosaurus, okay, meaning you're like my dad, you've never owned a computer, never touched a computer, the first time you ever even saw the mouse on a computer, you tried to speak into it, unless you're that level, okay? You are not to get one of these. You're to go online and download so, but, but if, you're, if, you're, if you need one, in all seriousness, you can stop by the, the hub and grab one. But if, let me just say, if you're a hipster and you have a cup of coffee in one hand and a cigar in the other and you have a goatee and you want one of these things, you're not getting it. That's all I'm going to say. All right. With that said, I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. We've been going through Matthew's gospel now for gosh, just a little over a year, it's hard to believe. And as we've seen, Matthew has one primary aim. His, he, has, he has one singular goal. He's not a complicated man, Matthew. Matthew, the disciple of Jesus, who lived and walked and talked, breathed with Jesus for three years, wants to make a case for us in this gospel that Jesus Christ is, in fact, God's long-awaited, long-anointed, long-promised and waited-for Messiah. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is from the line of David, and he has come to save his people from their sins. And in order to impress this upon us, what Matthew has done, he's, he's, he's kind of like a prosecutor for the first 14 chapters. He's just been gathering evidence to present to make his case. So he's compiled Jesus's teachings, and we've learned that no one had authority to teach like this man did. 
We, we, we've learned about Jesus' supernatural healings, his miracles, his exorcisms. These are all things that Matthew has laid out for us to, to kind of show us up close and personal. No mere man can do these things. This is the long-awaited prophet, the king. This is your Messiah, Jesus Christ. And as we get, though, to Matthew 14, Matthew records two miracles for us that would have been particularly impactful, not for just the disciples for whom they were done, but for those who are just getting acquainted with this man, Jesus. Remember, Matthew was writing in 60 AD, 30 years after Jesus had risen from the grave and ascended into heaven, he was writing to a group of Jews. And some were Jewish Christians and some were non-Christian Jews. And this, why, this is why this gospel is thoroughly Jewish from start to finish. But everyone knew that if you were a Jew, your hero from the Old Testament was Moses. Moses was evoked in conversation. He was quoted by the scribes and Pharisees. He was the standard bearer for all that was true for God's people. And Moses was particularly noted for a number of outstanding miracles. And what Jesus does here in Matthew 14 is he, in a sense, reenacts two of those miracles. He recreates them. He reperforms them, but in a way, and my apologies to Moses, I'll apologize in glory, blows Moses out of the water to show beyond a shadow of a doubt. Moses may be a prophet. He may have been a great prophet, but there is only one king. And what we saw last week as Pastor Scott preached on the feeding of the 5,000 is that if you were a Jew and you're reading this story, or if you're a Jew and you were a witness to this miracle, and here you are starving in the wilderness, and then all of a sudden Jesus creates bread, ex nilo, meaning out of nothing. He speaks it into existence. You would immediately have thought of, well, this is kind of like in the wilderness when God fed his people with manna, each and every day, this supernatural miracle. This would not have been lost on the people, and this explains why John 6 tells us that after Jesus did this miracle, they tried to make him king. They tried to take him by force and send him to the front of the, of the line to say, let's take Rome. Let's reconquer Jerusalem. Let's set God's people free. It was not lost on the people. And what we're going to see this morning is a second miracle, a second miracle that would undoubtedly have reminded the disciples and us of Moses, but something not even Moses could have dreamed. And in doing so, Jesus is not trying to do some dog and pony show. What he's wanting to communicate is that I'm not just a prophet, I'm the prophet. I'm not just a king, I'm the king. I'm not just a promised one, I am the promised one. And because of that, now this is crucial, you can entrust your life to me. You can follow me. That's his message to the disciples. It's his message to us this morning. So we're going to be in Matthew 14, verses 22 through 33. And if you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand as we read God's word together. We, we stand not out of ceremony um, 
or merely out of tradition, but out of a, a statement that we as God's people stand under his word. He is our king and he rules us with his word. Look at John, Matthew 14. Let's look at beginning of verse 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we embark on 2024, that our cry in whatever circumstance we find ourselves would simply be, Lord, save me. Father, the, the storms are fierce. The trials are ever-present. Lord, it seems that catastrophe, sin, suffering are just always lurking around the corner, and we truly Feel it, know it in our hearts. There's no safe place for us to put our foot except on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, would you speak that, impress that, and drill that down into our hearts this morning? And we ask these things in your Son's name, Jesus. Amen. Please take your seats. Matthew's not a complicated man, and while there are sometimes there are scripture passages where you have to really dig to kind of figure out what's going on, um, not so this morning. Matthew puts the cookies on the bottom shelf for us, and we appreciate that. And the main message or the main idea that Matthew wants to impress upon us is found in verse 33, and here it is. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Now, there, there's, there's two aspects to this that I want us to have in front of us as we dig into the text this morning. And the first is, is simply this. It's what we've been saying all along, that there is a truth, it's the biggest truth, the most foundational truth the most important truth in the history of mankind is simply this, that Jesus is nothing less than God himself. Yes, he's a prophet. Yes, he's a king. But he is also Yahweh, God in the flesh. 
And this Yahweh in the flesh has now appeared to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. People have said all kinds of things thus far about Jesus in Matthew's gospel. He's a great teacher. He's an authority figure. He's a magician. He does, he's a miracle worker. He's a great prophet. But do you realize that this is the first time in Matthew's gospel that anyone says this? This is the first time in Matthew's gospel that the disciples definitively put their cards on the table and say, truly, this is the Son of God, and this sets the course, literally, for the rest of their lives. But there's a second component to this. This is particularly important for us just personally, existentially, and it's simply this. If Jesus is truly God, then nothing less than unconditional worship and surrender to him is called for. You see, for Matthew, Jesus isn't just a a spiritual guru dropping little spiritual nuggets to sort of help us along our way. A lot of times we can approach a new year like that, right? What I need is just a little bit of Jesus sprinkled on some of these areas of my life just to sweeten the deal, just to make things better, just to, to, to help me be a better student, or to, to help me do better at work, or to help me accomplish my particular goals. And what the response of the disciples show us is no such option is allowed for us when we truly understand that Jesus is the Messiah. What is called for is unconditional worship. Jesus says, am I the Son of God? Yes, I am. Then entrust your life to me. Come to me, follow me, worship me. Graciously yield to my power and authority in your life. And that's where Jesus wants to take us this morning. So there's two points. We're going to drill down into the text on these two points. And here they are. First of all, we're going to talk about the power of the king. And secondly, the presence of the Christ. I know. Everybody look first under the power of the king down at verses 22 and 23. And this seems like kind of an odd statement that Matthew tosses in here. But let's, let's see where he's going with this. Verse 22, immediately he, meaning Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. That word made them literally means to compel, to order, to, to, to urgently press into. So some of you parents this morning, as you were opening the doors of your giant French fry, otherwise called your minivan, right? And, and did you say, come one and all sweet ones, and please enter the, 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 the automobile of your destination to take you. That's not, that's not how that worked, right? You're like, get in the car now, right? And that's the nature of this exhortation on the part of Jesus. Now, now what is this all about? Because remember, Jesus had just fed the 5,000. John 6 tells us they're trying to make him king. And we certainly could visualize at this point the disciples getting caught up in this fervor of, of saying, this is the moment we've all been waiting for. Jesus is at the pinnacle of his popularity. 
But instead, it's like the giant wah-wah, right? Jesus says, I'm going to dismiss the crowds. You guys go get in the boat and row the six miles over to Capernaum. It's as if Jesus is saying, hey guys, this is not what I'm here to do. My, my time is not yet come. Don't get caught up in the fervor. Cool your heels, which if you put yourself in their position, had to be just, the, just a little bit disappointing, right? A little bit confusing, a little bit deflating. This was the moment that Jesus, that they had been waiting for, and yet Jesus sends them away. Now, Last week, Pastor Scott showed, showed you this schematic on a map, and let, let me try to explain it one more time. So the Sea of Galilee in northern Israel is more like a giant lake. And at this point in time, they are on the northeast shore. And Jesus has performed this miracle kind of out in the boonies. People have tried to make him king. He sends them away. He sends the disciples away. And he sends them westward across the lake. Now, sometimes if on, your, on your little Google Maps feature on your phone, it'll tell you, well, it's six miles from here to here. But that's oftentimes as the crow flies, right? That means like if you could just fly directly there, that's how far it is. But if you were to actually walk it or drive it, it's usually much further. And that's what this deal was here. It was six miles to Capernaum or thereabouts where they were going to go next, but which really meant about a 10 or 12 mile walk. And so Jesus says, I want you guys, your professional fishermen after a while, get in your boat, row across the lake. I'm going up on the mountain to pray, and I will follow you later on foot. And they began rowing, it seems, at dusk. Now, we have to remember the disciples were seasoned fishermen. They were no dummies. And they knew better than anybody the, the, the treacherous nature of being on that sea, particularly when a storm was rolling in. You see, if you look at your map, Palestine's right on the Mediterranean. And what would happen is that storms would go from the west to the east and gain steam and kind of collapse on top of Palestine and the mountains, and it's still this way, by the way, and dump their load of weather chaos all over the Sea of Galilee. And undoubtedly, as the disciples are getting in this boat, deflated by the, elated then deflated by the day's events, and they see this storm brewing, they have to wonder, what in the world is Jesus up to? Because it's, it's, it's very obvious, it's evident, and it's crystal clear as, as possibly could be for Oaks, that Jesus knows this storm is coming. And yet he tells them, row your boat, point your ship right into the middle of that storm. And we have to ask, Pastor Paul, why in the world would Jesus do such a thing? And I think as we walk through this text, we're going to find out, folks, that Jesus, in fact, has a design behind this excursion. There's something that's going to happen in this storm that will give him the opportunity to reveal something about himself to those disciples that they desperately need to hear and to have. 
they need, they're going to need a knowledge of Jesus such that will anchor their souls, that will endure for the coming days and the trials. And Jesus says, the way that I'm going to accomplish that is I'm not going to shelter you from the storm, disciples. I'm sending you right into the middle of it. Because 2023, for many of you, most of us, in some way or fashion, was undoubtedly full of some sort of storm, right? There was cultural storms. There's international political storms. But for a lot of us, there were real personal storms, right? Personal marital storms. Maybe there's been a storm sort of raging in your body physically. Maybe there's been a, 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 a relational break or cleavage. Maybe there's been a, a financial storm or a vocational storm. And now, I, I'm, I'm no prophet, but I'm fairly confident of this. Guess what? 2024 promises more of the same, doesn't it? Because that's the nature of this life. Jesus said, he promised it, right? He said, um, you will have trouble in this world, but fear not, I have overcome the world. And what we have to embrace as believers, and this is what I think it means to have a God-centered theology, a God-centered view of life, is that sometimes to do the work of grace that God wants to do in our hearts, he sends us right into the middle of the storm. Now, sometimes, don't get me wrong, God does shelter us from the storm. And, and those are great times of peace and blessing. We, we, we get the word from the doctor that the coast is clear. We, we, we experience success or flourishing in our marriage or ministry or on our job. Our kids are walking with the Lord. No, no, God, don't, don't get me wrong, God, God gives and takes, Right? So, so oftentimes, yes, God does his work by his blessing, by his grace. He protects us through the storms. But sometimes, oftentimes, can I say this? Many, many times, the way God does this work is that he sends you right into the middle of it. I don't know everything that's happening in your life. I just know this. It's no accident. No storm in your life is ever happenstance. This is not Jesus going random on us here. This is not Jesus surprised by the storm. Oh my goodness, I sent the disciples across the lake and shazam, look, there is a storm. Oh no, no, no. This is an opportunity, a divine opportunity for him to do a work. Hey, look down, let's keep going through the story, verse 25. It says that Jesus came to them in the fourth watch of the night. Why does Matthew tell us that? It's his way of saying these dudes have been struggling rowing all night. See, the fourth watch was between 3 and 6 a.m. And the fact that they can see this apparition, and we'll get there in a second, this ghost-like figure on the lake, probably tells us it's, it's, it's getting to be almost morning. The sun is peeking over the horizon there. But they've been rowing all night. The storms are battering them. Um, they are terrified. No, this is no pontoon boat excursion, right? These are seasoned fishermen 
who know they are in real trouble. And they look up and something is coming towards them on the water. Look back at the text. They say it's a ghost, literally a phantom. That's what the Greek word means. It's an apparition. And if you think about this for a second, this 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 is not like a lot of times when we think of ghosts, right? I mean, we think about the haunted mansion at the Magic Kingdom, all you Disneyophiles, right? The little cutesy ghost on your doom buggy, get it, doom buggy, all right? Riding on the back as it takes your picture and your ghost host and all this. That is not what's happening here. There is no other explanation for the disciples about this mysterious figure. All they can come up with is it must be a ghost. It was that real. It was that lifelike. And as this happens, Moses, I'm sorry, Matthew draws our attention to two things. Okay, let's look back at the text. First, he tells us Jesus is walking on the water. Now, if you do an Old Testament study of water, okay, in the Bible, you will find that the Jews had kind of a love-hate relationship with water, right? The Jews were not a seafaring people. Um, In fact, going all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, water was deemed a very dangerous thing because after all, as God created the heavens and the earth, what was happening on the earth before he created man? It was covered with what? Water. And it was turbulent and it was chaotic and it was dark and it was void and God had to go to work to peel back the water from the land in order to bring order from chaos. And so water was a scary prospect. We know that water is oftentimes in the Old Testament a symbol of what? Judgment. We think, of course, about Jonah. And he was on the storms of the sea running from God. And God says, if you love the sea that much, I'm going to give you a full dosage of it, right? And Jonah is thrown overboard. He's swallowed by the well. But of course, the prime example of water as judgment in the Old Testament is found where? Of course, the flood. And it's this backdrop of, of, of this fear of water, this concern for water, this connection of water to judgment, of course, that forms the backbone of probably what is the greatest of all miracles in the Old Testament. It's the one that all of Old Testament redemptive history is built around. And what am I referring to? Of course, the crossing of the Red Sea. You see, it was, I mean, that was drilled into your heart and mind as a Jewish child from the very beginning. That this, in fact, was a picture of your salvation and redemption. That Pharaoh is on the loose and he has you cornered by the Red Sea. But what does God do? He uses his servant Moses to throw down his staff and the water parts and the Israelites walk right across it. Well, God, Jesus, one-ups that. These are raging seas, and Jesus says, no parting of the sea is needed. The sea is not an obstacle here. I own the sea. I created the sea. I'm sovereign over the sea. I'm greater than all of this water. I'm so powerful 
this is not even an obstacle for me. It's the way that I'm taking as the God-man to walk across and meet this boat on the water. Because he's so powerful, not only can he walk on water, but he can get whomever he wants to, Peter, which we're going to see in a minute, to walk on water as well. What's the, like, this is sort of like Matthew, like, standing up and, like, waving his hands. <laughs> Hello, Jewish people, Four Oaks people. Someone greater than Moses is here. This is the man who isn't just a mediator between God and man. He's not just doing signs on behalf of God. This is God himself. He walks on water. And I cannot help but think the disciples had these verses ringing in their ears. And some of you are familiar with them. Isaiah 43. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. For when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And who is that talking about? Jesus. Folks, do you, do you believe that? That Jesus is the Lord your God? That he's the Holy One of Israel? That he is your Savior? Well, he shows it not just by what he does, walking in the water, but he shows it also by what he says to his disciples. Look at verse 27. He says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, one of the things that's sort of lost in the English that you can't really replicate unless you can see underneath it to the original language is the, is the phrase, it is I. Literally, that phrase is ego amin. I am. Only Jesus can say I am and people know who he is, right? In other words, take heart, I am. Do not be afraid. And of course, we know that that is an expression, we, and we find this particularly in John's gospel, right? Where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. And this is clearly, I mean, the Jews, by the way, the religious leaders fully understood what Jesus was saying there, by the way, because they wanted to kill him. But here, this is clearly uh, an expression that goes, comes right from the Old Testament when Moses, there it is, says, God, who do I tell him sent me? And what does God say? I am sent me, sent you. I am who I am. Jesus comes on the water and says, I am is here. And why does he do this? Because when we're, we're in danger, any of us, what we oftentimes want most of all is someone to just tell us it's going to be okay. I don't know if you saw the news story the other night, but there was an airliner flying through the air, and part of the fusel fuselage becomes dislodged, 
and the window breaks and the cabin is depressurized, okay? And then you see everybody's oxygen mask pop down. Anytime you see the oxygen mask on the plane, that's probably not a good thing. Everybody agree, okay? And first of all, I'm thinking, who in the heck has the, the, the wherewithal to be videoing all of this? That's the first thing I'm thinking. But what, if you're in that plane, what is the one thing that you long to hear more than anything else? You want that pilot to come over the intercom and say, it's going to be okay. We're landing the plane. We've got it under control. Because when, when your child has a nightmare, and I, I was notorious for this, I was a notorious sleepwalker, and oftentimes I would wake up in the middle of my parents' house, in their living room, and they would have to take me back to bed, and what's the one thing that I would want to hear them say? It's what? okay, you're going to be all right. Because when you go to the doctor with something suspicious, something, something troubling, what do you want to hear the doctor say? Everything's going to be okay. Now, here's the reality of living in this life. We all know no one in this life can give us absolute assurance, right? You tell your kids it's going to be okay, but no, but here's the reality, you can't guarantee it. You, you really don't know if it's going to be okay or not. The pilot may tell you it's okay, and he knows it's not okay. You are on that cruise ship and heading into a storm, and the pilot's really thinking, the captain's really thinking, we are in big trouble. See, in this life, no one can guarantee this. Not your doctor, not your spouse, not your friend. Only one person can say, fear not, and that's Jesus. He is the king, he is Yahweh. When he, when he says, it's going to be okay. Guess what? It's going to be okay. And his economy is far different than ours. And I just want to, before we leave this point, let me just ask you, as you embark on this new year, where do you need a fresh vision of Jesus as the great I am? As the one who is not just walking beside you, but the one who is literally lifting you out of the water, the one who is in absolute sovereign control, who says, take heart, do not be afraid. Where, what do you fear this year? What are you anxious about? What concerns you? There is only one sure place to put our foot in this life. We sang about it this morning. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. So Jesus shows himself here as the powerful king. Last point, and we're going to go through this one quickly. Jesus shows himself in the presence of the Christ. Now look down at verses 28 through 31. And this is probably the most infamous part of this story, right? Where Peter attempts 
his walk across the water. He sinks and he's lifted up. Now, here's something interesting I did not realize until I was studying this passage this week, that Matthew is actually the only gospel writer who tells us this part of the story. John tells us about the walking, uh, John tells us about walking on the water. Mark tells us about walking on the water. And it's only Matthew, though, who gives us this little juicy tidbit about Peter. And I love just to, like, daydream about what that's all about. Like, that's got to be an inside joke, right? Like, they're at the 30-year disciple reunion, and Matthew's <laughs> like, remember that time, Peter? Um, I don't know. No, but actually, I, I think there is a real specific reason for Matthew including it here. But look, let me first say how I think we oftentimes are tempted to, to look at this and on the other hand, what I think Matthew is really impressing upon this. A lot of times, here's what we think. Here's big, bold, brash Peter, right? He's always putting his foot in it. He's always sticking his nose. He's always over-promising, under-delivering. Here goes Peter high-stepping across that water, right? He's doing just fine. He's looking at Jesus. He takes his eyes off Jesus. He sinks He's rebuked by Jesus. And what is the moral of the story? Bad Peter, right? Don't be like Peter, four oaks. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Have more faith. And I think, quite honestly, this misses the whole point. You see, I think Peter is the one man who does have faith. He's the one who says, Jesus, can I come to you? Now, understand something. Some people say, well, this is presumption. This is this. This is that. What does Jesus say to Peter's request to come to him? Jesus says what? Come. And the reason, and John MacArthur says this, and I think it's right on, why does Peter ask to come to Jesus? Why does Peter want to walk on the water to Jesus? It's actually very simple, because Jesus is there deflated disciples in the middle of a storm, terrified by wit's end, Peter sees Jesus and says, I'm here, Jesus is there, I want to be with Jesus. And he begins to walk. Jesus never rebukes Peter in this passage for not having faith. What he does rebuke Peter 4, is that his faith is weak, that it's small, right? But again, I don't think that's the main point. The main point is not that Peter had weak faith. The point is, what did Jesus do in response to Peter's weak faith? He saves him immediately. He grabs him by the collar in the midst of this storm, and literally hoists him into the boat. He's like, a, he's like a mother cat with her little kitten in his mouth, dropping Peter back into safety. The most amazing thing about this passage, because this is what religion says. Religion says, if your faith is weak, you just sink. It's all in you. It's all about you. It's all about you this year. It's all about your resolve, all about your um, stick to your consistency, your self-discipline. Can I just state the very obvious 
this year, every one of us is going to sink. There's some of you who are sinking right now. There's some of you who are in a desperate place, and what we can learn from Peter is what to say in that time of desperation. What does Peter say? Lord, save me. Because what a clarion call for 2024. That no matter what situation you find yourself in, whether it's physically, psychologically, maritally, emotionally, financially, vocationally, when the waters come over your head, and guess what? They're going to come over your head. That you cry out, Lord, save me. And I just love what Matthew tells us here. Look at verse 31. Jesus, what? Immediately reached out his hand. Because let me say a statement, and then I want to illustrate it, and then we're going to be done. Here's the statement. The truth of the gospel in your life is not dependent upon the quantity or the quality of your faith. It's dependent upon the object of your faith. Here's an illustration that I heard Don Carson use one time, and I think it's apropos, and we'll, we'll be done after this. Imagine you're an Israelite in Old Testament Israel. You're in Egypt, and it's Passover. And God has told you, all the families, to kill a lamb, put the blood above the doorway, and when the angel of death comes, he's going to pass over you and slay the firstborn of the Egyptians. And you and all your friends are obedient to this task. But there's two men that are having a conversation about this before everybody goes to bed that night. And the first one says, can you, isn't God amazing? He's mighty to save. He's strong. He's given us this provision. He's going to take down Pharaoh. He's going he's, he's to accomplish his will and his deed with his people. Full of faith, right? Then you have someone who's, let's just say, weaker in faith. They're like, man, I would love to believe that. And, and, and I want that to be true, but man, I'm so scared. I'm so fearful. What if, Pharaoh, what if Pharaoh takes off after us? What if the angel of death makes a mistake? What if, what if, what if? But they both go to bed that night with the blood over the door. Whose house does the angel of death pass over? both of them because it's not about the quality or quantity of their faith it's about the blood of the lamb and jesus says and the disciples say about him truly you are the son of god because the only prerequisite to your salvation is that you simply admit that you cannot save yourself. And the cry of faith remains the same 2,000 years later. Lord, save me or I perish. That's the gospel. But here's the second part of this. That's just, a, that's, that, that's just mind-blowing. 
Jesus saves us, but the way Jesus saves you, the way Jesus saves me, is that Jesus goes under the wave for us. Jesus is consumed by the darkness. Jesus is on the cross crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus forsaken for us in our place so that we might not be forsaken by God, but in fact, secure, blessed, forgiven, and grace-filled because of what Jesus has done for us. See, Jesus doesn't just lift you out of the darkness. He descended into the darkness himself on our behalf. That's what we celebrate and remember when we come to the table each and every week at the end of our service. Folks, is Jesus your king? Is Jesus your savior? Are you trusting in him? I ask you to bow your heads just for a minute or two. I ask you to prepare your hearts as we get ready to take communion together. And as you're doing that, I'm going to ask our leaders to come forward, prepare to serve the elements. Lord, we of little faith come to you and pray that you would save us. That you would renew our hearts and our minds as we embark on this new year. Lord, that we would know whatever storm you are sending us into, whatever storm you're sending our way, that you are the sovereign God who loves us and cares for us. And because of that, we can entrust ourselves to you. So Lord, give us faith to believe that. In your name we pray. Amen. Four Oaks, I invite you to stand. If this is your first time at Four Oaks or maybe the first time to celebrate communion, let me just explain how that works. You're going to exit out of the left side of your row and come and break off a piece of the bread. We'll do this row by row. Take a cup of juice or wine back to your seats. If you're in the balcony or the back half of the auditorium, there are tables and leaders back there as well. But we come worshiping, we return to our seats worshiping, and we take the elements together, just like the disciples in that boat 2,000 years ago. We huddle together as God's people and say, you are truly the Son of God. We worship you. This table is open to any and all not who have huge amounts of faith, but who simply know they can't save themselves and are trusting in Jesus. So come for Oaks, the gifts of God for the people of God.
there is strength within the sorrow. There's beauty in our tears, and you meet us in our mourning with a love that casts out fear. You are working in our waiting, sanctifying us. When beyond our understanding, you're teaching us to trust. Your plans are still to prosper. You have not forgotten us, oh, you're with us in the fire and the flood, faithful forever, perfect in love, you are sovereign over us. You are wisdom imagine who could understand your ways reigning high above the heavens reaching down in endless grace you're the lifter of the lowly Passionate and kind, you surround and you uphold me, and your promises are my delight. Your plans are still to prosper, you have not forgotten us. You're with us in the fire and the flood. Just as Jesus was raised from the darkness into newness of life and the resurrection, we also, trusting in him, are raised to newness of life with our union with him. Let's take his blood together.
So I encourage you to take advantage of that. But here's this benediction from Isaiah 43. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? Well, we, we know that way is Jesus Christ. So go this day in the power of the Spirit and the love of God and in the merciful, gracious, sacrificial, substitutionary death of Jesus on your behalf. Go in peace. Have a great Lord's Day. 